Tonight on Arena. Conor Hanratty on his classic-inspired recital Eurydice and Orpheus and photographs of the iconic David Bowie. You can text us on 51551 or tweet at RTE Arena. Choreographer David Bulger is promising to lift audiences from their winter blues with his new show, The Peace with the Drums, opening next week at the Project Arts Centre in Dublin. It's a collaboration with jazz musician Conor Gilfoyle, who will be joined on stage by six dancers in an exploration of the connection between percussion and movement. David is, of course, Artistic Director of Cushcame Dance Theatre Company, and I'm delighted that he and Conor are in studio with me. David, I was going to ask why drums but of course rhythm and beat is all about what you do as a dancer and choreographer. Sure, yeah, it's it's um, it seems like a really natural uh, marriage but um, it, just kind of going back to the, the, the origins of, of, uh, of why we're doing this collaboration in the first place was um, during the, the first uh, set of restrictions for COVID I, I noticed that, the, you know, because people were uh, industry had stopped and and you know people were quieter and I could really feel uh, a sense that the sound had had dropped and I started to kind of look into it or or uh, explore it a bit and research it and realize you know understood about vibrations and um, I got really caught up in this idea of vibrations and how we, we our bodies our own bodies vibrate and how um, our moods are, are, it's part of our communication and, and our moods are really ch- uh, changed with that or somebody can change the vibe in a room very quickly. And uh, in the, kind of in the midst of that research, a ping, a bing went on in my, uh, on my computer and I opened it, it was a message and it was a message from Conor Gilfoyle and I said, oh, that's the jazz percussionist Conor Gilfoyle who I worked with 20 years ago and had lost touch with. And he said to me, um, I've always saw myself uh, dancing or dance being an extension of me taking sound from the drums. And uh, I'd love to collaborate with 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 dance. And hey, here, here I'm just firing off this this message to you to see, would you be interested? And it kind of came on the back of me doing research about vibrations and, of course, drumming and uh, is vibration and how we hear it. And. I just thought, wow, this is this is kind of an incredible timing. The timing was 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 right, and I said, leave it with me. And I started to really think about it. And I, I said, why don't we try and get a workshop together, and uh, bring bring some dancers together, and we'll 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 start the we'll start the ex- the journey of it. And, and one of those questions I think that David asked you then, Connor, was um, about. Anxiety dreams. <laughs> and as a drummer, do you have an anxiety dream, which was really a kind of trigger for the, the, the production? Yeah, well, it was something that came about in the workshop. Um, we were just talking about, you know, we were exploring different things, you know, the connections. And uh, I think dreams was possibly one of the things that came up. But then I, I started saying, well, I have this idea. I have an, a regular anxiety dream that I'm playing a gig and the drums are either too close to me or else they're too far away from me or that my bass drum is sliding away from me. And it's always the most important gig I have, you know, and, you know, it, that I'm doing. And it's the one time I can't do it. And, it te- and there tends to be different reoccurring versions of that. So we talked about that. And, and of course, 
you know, David being David, <laughs> and uh, ex- to explore this idea of moving the drums away from me while I'm trying to play. And it, this is one of the things that happened. Yeah. So you got in and you dismantled the drum kit that yeah. we all know. Like, yeah, it seems kind of like a, the right thing to do because, um, you know, you're always looking for clues about how, <clears throat> excuse me, how a collaboration can, can how we can push each other a little bit. And, and um I said, said, yeah, let's just remove the drums because you normally see uh, the drum kit set up. You see the drummer behind the drum kit. It's it's kind of like an armor for them in a way. <laughs> so I just slid the drum kit away uh, from Connor and, and spread it out over the room. And then we started to explore each drum and each what each drum does in the in the jazz setup. And um, Connor being really knowledgeable in 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 jazz and particularly jazz percussion and why certain rhythms are called certain names and where they've come from. And we were able to kind of go through each drum and I realised how much emotion there was actually in the drums and how much vibration that that they affected us. So I was able to take very, very good uh, cues or clues from that. Now, you, Connor, you use many different drum styles mm-hmm. in the in the show, and yeah. one of them is a track called Big Sid. And could you just tell us about that? Oh, yeah, well... Um Big Sid is a, a very famous uh, drum piece that's in the jazz you know, uh, repertoire played by Max Roach. Uh, it was a dedication to Big Sid Catlett. Big Sid Catlett was a swing drummer back in the 1930s, played with Louis Armstrong. And he wrote a tune called Mop Mop that has a very distinctive rhythmic phrase. And Max Roach basically took that uh, rhythmic phrase and turned it into a drum piece. And the idea is that the drums can carry melody, that it can carry structure, that people listen to it don't need the particular pitches to hear the melody, that they hear the the rhythm within the drum set itself. Let's listen to some of that now. That's an extract from uh, Big Sid from a new show, The Piece with the Drums in it from Came Dance Company. And I'm here with Conor Gilfoyle, the, the jazz drummer and uh, Came's artistic director, David Bolger. So was it that sense of melody then? That, were you aware of that? I mean, you were obviously aware of the percussionist yeah, think, elements of drumming. I think we're, we're kind of, yeah, we have that ability we're aware of it but actually when you start isolating down into it and you realise how complex it is and how um, complex it kind of uh, how complex the, the sound actually is or the vibration is and and also finding the emotion in it which which really kind of surprised me in, in ways um, but working with the dancers with it it was great to see uh, the way the dancers took on the 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 vibrations of the rhythm and and what kind of came out from them with, the, with mixing their own vibrations with with Connor, and um, also finding kind of what is the dialogue between the the two because uh, you know Connor was go oh I I I'm not dancing but but actually Connor 
does dance in the piece. He dances when he plays the drums, but he also is dancing in the piece because I made him to do it. <laughs> yes, because presumably you have to move from one piece of the drum kit to the other, scene as you yeah. separated it all. Yeah, you, yeah. Connor. That's very true. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And uh, <clears throat> as as David said, you know, when we're even though I'm sitting down, I, there's a lot of movement when you play when you play drums. You can't sit rigidly and just. Yes, move I think your we wrists. know that for most drummers. Yeah, most <laughs> so you know. For, um, for me, anyway, I like to dance, you know, and I've played a lot of dance music. I've had salsa bands for a long, long time. So I'm very interested in the idea of what I play makes people move. Yet there's no visible connection, even if that could be someone tapping a foot in a club, you know, they can feel it. So what is that connection that that happens? And I think that's some of the area we're trying to explore with it. Now, of course, me dancing is more of a dad dance than a contemporary dance. <laughs> but Would that be right, David? <laughs> He's pretty good now. I mean, he's, he's, he's on this. He's on the beat anyway, you know. But I decided to put a, a kind of a, a, a dream sequence in the piece just just for fun, uh, and it actually works beautifully. But um, there's there's quite a big surprise that that happens, and I decided let's really go for it. If we're going to go for it, we're going to go big, and it's January, and we want to let's just go for it and be happy. Yeah, <laughs> oh, I'm yes. dying to see what this surprise is. Um, and kind of the other thing, you are is a, a jazz historian, and and oh. you work. In DCU and and the history of mm. of of the various yes. drums yeah. and the let's say the symbols that we all know that they mm-hmm. have a very interesting history. Yeah, well, uh, you know, of course, you know, the jazz drum set is basically our jazz instruments in general are really to, are come from the military. So if you think of military marches, Sousa marches, you've got the brass and you've got drums. That's essentially what we have. And with with jazz, they have that. You know, the drum set, of course, was originally three or four different players playing it. You had someone playing cymbals, you had someone playing snare drums, some playing bass drum. New Orleans marches are a perfect example of where the drums started off. And it's really the... they After the Civil War, they came together and, the, and I... I suppose the bass drum pedal, believe it or not, is probably the biggest innovation because now people could play sitting down indoors and they could play the bass drum as well as the snare drum and the hi-hats, of course, and using your feet, you know. I'm also, you know, I'm just very interested in, you know, this whole social development of music as well, you know, how music you know, was developed within society and how society develops around music, etc. And again, we're exploring this whole idea. And now, David, the next piece we're going to play is called Samba, which with Connor playing again. So, do the dancers then respond in a samba way, or yeah, we, we we played with with that, but sometimes we don't do what the rhythm might uh, obviously say, and mm-hmm. we try and get underneath it or come at it from a different perspective. But taking the energy of it, or the you know, with the samba, it's 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 up and it's fast and it's got a it's got its own uh, voice, but but to try and mix contemporary dance with that. There's some really interesting uh, cultural changes in that, um, I think, I mean, particularly with the cast that we have there. They all come from very diverse backgrounds and um, I really wanted them to bring themselves to it. So rather than force a kind of a, a, a style onto them, I wanted them to, to bring their personalities out and see what the music does for them. Samba from The Peace with the Drums, the new show at Project Arts Centre in Dublin. And I'm here with David Bulger, uh, the Artistic Director of Kush Came and Conor Gilfoyle, who 
is the percussionist playing all of that. So um, best of luck with the show. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, thanks, the, the, uh, do you think there might even be audience participation? At least they'll be tapping their toes, you hope. I hope. I hope. We worked with um, Katie Davenport, the set designer, and um, one of the things that we wanted to do was make sure that the audience felt um, included very much so that their, their own vibrations are part of the kind of final piece of the puzzle of this piece. So um, it's it's really interesting. I think the design is is extraordinary and I think she's really managed to capture that yeah. the audience are very part of it. We're not going to do anything bad to them, but they are they are naturally part of it. So I think that's really, really nice. If I may add, you know, without the audience, as we found out during COVID, we all did these video recitals and this and this was not the same thing so it's you know no, it's no wonderful it's, it's wonderful to be back yes. so my thanks to David Bulger and Conor Gilfoyle the piece with the drums is a project at Project Art Centre Dublin from the 17th to the 28th of January including a Saturday matinee at 2.30 full details at projectartcentre.ie Sad news reached us this afternoon of the death of Galway poet Kevin Higgins. Kevin was born in London in 1967, but spent most of his life in Galway, where he not only became a popular poet, but also a creative writing teacher, a literary agent, organiser and critic. In a statement from the president, Michael D. Higgins, he said, I cannot think of anyone who did more to bring the public to an appreciation and joy of poetry, to make the case for performed poetry and who encouraged others to read broadly and most of all to make poems and find their meaning in their lives. Kevin Higgins was noted for his dry and acerbic take on many subjects, as you can probably hear from this poem, Ourselves Again, which he read in the UCD special collections reading room part of the Irish poetry reading archive we will let Kevin introduce the poem himself this poem is called ourselves again and I wrote it the weekend after it was declared that Ireland was officially in recession in 2008 for the first time since 1982 and me and a friend of mine always had a joke during the Celtic Tiger years that when recession returned uh, that everything terrible about the 1980s in Ireland will be reinstalled bit by bit, ourselves again. In the park, our ice lollies fall victim to the June bank holiday heat, while in glass rooms, numbers moving through dark computers declare the future finished. Tomorrow, we'll have our double glazing taken out, the crack put back in the ceiling and a draft installed under every door. I'll attach a for sale sign to the seat of my pants. Gangs of the angry unemployed will bear down on the G Hotel, chanting down with daiquiris and slippery nipples, give us back our glasses of harp. In pubs nationwide, the carpets of yesteryear will be reinstated and there'll be meetings of Sinn Féin, the Workers' Party, going on permanently upstairs. On our knees we'll ask for the unforgiveness of sins and life not lasting. We'll be ourselves again, and then some. Poet Kevin Higgins, whose death was announced today. In You're listening to Wednesday Night's Arena. 
The Dublin Bowie Festival returns for its eighth year with a programme of live music, dance, art, film and cultural events dedicated to the iconic Starman. One of the festival highlights is Bowie Icon, an exhibition of photographs of the rock star from across the decades by the renowned French photographer Philippe Auliac. Many of these images are now deemed classic portrayals and for this extensive exhibition, Philippe will have over 60 photographs on display as well as an audiovisual screening of further images and some rare interviews with Bowie. I'm delighted to be joined by Philippe Auliac now. Philippe, your connection with David Bowie uh, goes back a long way. You as a young boy was very influenced by David Bowie and in fact, you know, was the beginning of your career as a photographer. Yes, the first time I is there for David, I was 14 on the radio. But I don't know if I was living in France and I don't know who is this man. I'm going to the press office to see in a newspaper who is this man. And I say a photography of David in dress. And when I come back at home, I say to my parents, oh, this man is the most beautiful girl. <laughs> I see. And I begin to interest of David and one day I see in another newspaper a very close-up picture but I don't understand nothing as a photography a very close-up and I say if a man is microc take a picture like this he know David I don't want to be just a fan I want to know David I want to be a photographer music photographer and David Bowie photographer. That's the beginning of the story. And then when he, your first photograph of David Bowie came at a very important stage in David Bowie's life. 1976, he returned to London after a few years where he had a quite rock and roll lifestyle, lots of drugs, maybe quite strange political views. Tell us a little bit about that photograph of his return to Victoria Station and we will tweet the image that you took of him there. Yes, this is a very famous picture because the English newspaper say David Bowie made a Nazi salute at the station, but no. Yes, because at the time it was thought that he was having extreme political views, like saying positive things about Hitler. So they liked to read into what they saw as yes. a Nazi salute. But it was a provocation from David to say he was maybe a fascist. But at the Vicarious Station, we come to France by train and RCA, RCA Music Company, Ask to fan to come to welcome David at the station. Three or four hundred fans waiting for David, and David wants to speak to the fan, but the sonorization not in, in action. David stand up on the Mercedes and from the right to the left say hello with N. And we take photo with a motor drive. Tac 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 tac. And on Monday, the press take the photograph with the legs, the arm stand, and have Bowie, Hyde and Farrell, fascist Nazut. But no, it's just say hello. 
Yes, so he was saying hello. So the photograph we are tweeting now is your photograph. Yes. It's called Favourite Number One, Victoria Station, London, 1976. And that is your first photograph yes. of David Bowie. So then you were invited to Berlin, where, which was uh, obviously a, a seminal time for David Bowie. He did the Berlin Trilogy, which is are the albums Low, Heroes and Lodger. And you were there with Bowie, Brian Eno, Tony Visconti, who has been on this programme while he was making uh, th- that music. What was that experience like? Yes, the Berlin Trilogy don't exist. It's just a commercial name because the low album was recorded in the Chateau d'Hérouville in France and Heroes was just finished in Anza Studio. But it was a strange, uh, strange period because when David recorded low, it was very experimental. It's electronic. It's a strange time for the musician. For me, because I was very young, it was the first time I worked with a rock star and he's my idol. But working with Bowie is very simple. With Eno, it's simple. With Tony Visconti, is another thing because he have a big ego. Big ego. Okay, so there was lots of egos in, in the room. But, but you and David did get on and, 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 you know, grew your friendship. Yes. But the, the friendship with David is a, is a mutual respect because I am a photographer, I am a technician and a journalist and he is an artist and is a mutual respect. This, this is the key of a long way. And did you see a, a major development in David Bowie, the, the artist, um, and I guess the man, during that time in, in Berlin? Oh, you have two things. David Bowie is just a product. The man is David Robert Jones. And when he comes to Berlin, is because he don't want to take no more drugs. This is Angie, his wife, who say to David, we come to Berlin and after we go to Swiss. And... After Berlin, David just become a simple man. Makes three album, simple man, and he died the first time in '83 with a major contract with EMI. And at this, at this time, when he's seen with EMI, he is not an artist; he's just a product for the record company. Okay, so you're saying that there were very two distinct people that you knew. You knew David Jones, the the real person, but then the the construct. And you're saying that that the Let's Dance album in 83 was very much a construct, uh, a product, uh, a commercial product. Was he unhappy with Let's Dance because he was, he felt a bit too commercial? With that sense, David have a lot of money, but he's unhappy. And he's unhappy too with the Glide Spider tour because he just wants to be a singer. And in uh, 89, he makes so, he's a group Teen Machine. He's just a singer and he's happy with this. He don't want to be a big star because at the beginning, David don't want to be a big star. He just wants to be a variety singer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, I think we may have been having a little, may, maybe not problems with Twitter, but it's a little slower than normal tonight. So we're going to do um, w- the next photograph is the Plaza Athene and Hotel. And that that was that in France or 
Yes, yes. is in Paris. In Paris. So that uh, that's the. F Can you describe that photograph for us, Philippe? Yes, at ten uh, o'clock in the morning, Barbara David, who was a man Bowie manager, called me. David want to take picture at mid time. I say no, mid time in June is not good for the light because it's very hard. David say to me time because David I have an idea, and we go outside. David say are you okay? I say yes. I have a old camera, Rolleiflex six six, and he take a, a cigarette, and he turn on the left one shot, in front one shot, in left one shot, and another one, and he say it's over, it's good, and. As a castle, we have the four picture is absolutely magnificent. <clears throat> so he's thinking in images as well as musically all the time. Yes, yes, which which probably yes. talks about the bond he had with you. Yes, he, he know exactly what type of picture the photograph made because he, he looked to the lens and the focus. So uh, it, the the third photograph we're going to tweet is called In Concert 2004. Um, that's one of the last photographs you you took of, on stage of, da uh, on stage of David. Uh, talk to us about that. This is a picture with Earl Sleek. And if you look the Bowie face, it's a shadow man. It's a very terrific, but he's a, All is a shadow, is all man's carry in this picture. And in you were in you were one of the few people who knew that that he was very ill. Uh, how did you know that? Is that because of your friendship and keeping in touch with him? No, it's a long it's a long way uh, with uh, mutual respect and confidence. And David is a very simple man very very nice guy and this is the key of the relationship always he never want to make a censor my picture he say if you to all photograph to Mikrog to Denis Oregon he say if you want this picture this is the right picture and this is the key of David David is respectful man Okay, well, maybe we'll go out on a track. This is Sound and Vision from Low, oh. which, of course, you were present at the creation I was of. at the studio when you record. My thanks to Philip Auliak. His exhibition of Bowie photographs is at the at Rathfarnham Castle, Dublin, from January the 11th to the 29th. For full details of the Dublin Bowie Festival, see dublinbowiefestival.ie. Well, January always brings a new stock of books onto our shelves and there is nothing more welcome in these wintry nights than a good old-fashioned crime thriller. Sam Blake is one of our most successful crime writers. A new book from her will always cause a stir. Well, in The Mystery of Four, she is nodding to the golden age of crime writing with a big house murder mystery to keep us gripped. 
In The Mystery of Four, we meet Tess Morgan, a young woman who has finally made her dream of restoring Kilfenora House and Gardens in County Wicklow a reality. But just a week before the grand opening, her dream turns into a nightmare when a terrible accident looks set to ruin her plans. And as people begin to die in a pattern that mirrors past events, it seems like the house may indeed be cursed. I'm delighted to be joined by Sam Blake, which is the nom de plume of Vanessa Fox O'Loughlin. Sam, Vanessa so you're so welcome. Lovely to be here. Thanks so much, Kim. So, uh, Vanessa, you say in the acknowledgements that you were inspired for the mystery of four uh, by Amanda Lee's book, The Dictionary of Crime. What is that and how did it inspire you? It's fantastic. Um, Amanda Lee's is amazing, actually. She used to be in Hello, Hello. You know, remember the comedy Hello, Hello? She was the Russian, I think, leader of the Russian resistance. Um, but she's turned to writing and she um, has written The Dictionary of Crime, which literally is a dictionary of a list of all the ways that you can kill people um, and different poisons and um, ways of doing nasty things to people. So from a crime writer's point of view, it's absolutely fascinating. Great breakfast reading. Oh, right. And what, what particularly inspired you from the book? So or? I was flicking through and um, reading. I got I literally was going to start reading A to Z because it was so interesting. And um, I got to aconite, which is this incredible poison. Um, and aconite flowers are this beautiful, the beautiful, you know, the colour of bluebells, that sort of blue purple. And I absolutely adore that colour. So I was, compl- it was sort of in my little dream world thinking about aconite and discovering that actually it's a very interesting poison because it's very, very toxic. Um, but it grows very freely in a lot of gardens, a lot of ornamental gardens. Um, but it's, it really is quite a nasty dose if you if you get involved with it. Um, and also it doesn't stay in the body terribly long. So it's, it's very hard to detect, uh, which again for a crime writer is very, very interesting. And uh, does it grow in Ireland? It does. It grows all over Europe and um, it's blue, bluey purple in Europe and yellow in Asia. And um, yeah, very, very, very toxic. So you have to be a little bit careful. So if you see anybody... <laughs> going around the garden looking for a blue herb, uh, just run away. So uh, introduce us to some of the characters. Tess Morgan is the woman with the big plan. She is indeed. She's the woman with the big plan and the big problem. Um, So she has, um, she went to Dubai basically to go to work. Something really nasty happened to her in in Ireland and um, she left university and went off to Dubai and got a really great job in Dubai and did very well there. Um, But it's time for her to come home and she sees a friend of hers shows her on Instagram post of a this country house ruin for sale and uh, she decides that she's going to put all her money all the money she's earned in Dubai and inheritance and everything into it um, and restore the house because she really needs a big project to come back to Ireland um, for um, so she buys Kilfenora house and uh, she spends a couple of years restoring it um, during Covid so she's giving people work and she's doing all sorts of things um, so this is really her li- really her life's work at this stage she's put absolutely everything into it um, and we meet her the week before the grand opening um, the grand opening Kilfenora um, house is next to Kilfenora or a village um, up in the mountains, high in the mountains. Very, it's a totally fictitious place, but anybody who knows, say, Ockram or Rathdrum will be, will be familiar with the type of village. And um, she is getting ready for the opening weekend. She's involved the entire village in this, this big spectacular. They've got a vintage car rally and they've got a market. And the big thing that's happening is um, a production of Dr Faustus um, that the local amateur dramatic society have got involved with. Um, and this is happening in the ballroom to showcase the ballroom, to give something for the press to come along and see. And um, basically things start to go really quite badly wrong. Right. Now, things go very badly wrong uh, during the lead up, but there's also other 
problems uh, stacking up for her. How many? How much can you tell us about those problems? Oh, I can. She she just she gets a telephone call um, right before, right, but literally as the book opens, she gets a telephone call from a journalist um, saying that he is working on a cold case program, and he believes that um, a body has, is buried on her property, and it's a body that's been linked to a serial killer that's been working in the area. Um, and I I picked up that from I was watching a, a documentary with Trevor McDonald, um, and he had a, was running a cold case documentary and looking for um, Fred West's victims and approached a landowner. There was a big farm where he was convinced that um, one of the victims had been buried and approached the, the, the owners of the property and the farm owner didn't want to have anything to do with it. And I just thought this was a huge moral dilemma. It was really interesting that if you were in that situation where you had land um, and there was this you've sort of a moral obligation to the victim and the family to see if their if their remains are there um but at the same time do you want to get caught up in this huge drama especially when you've invested all well, your life savings indeed, in this in Tessa's whole project case, so it, it it is a, a big dilemma for it her is. so the idea of the big house i said it was a nod to the golden age yeah. of so we're talking agatha christie Very here when so. we're talking golden age obviously anything with the big house because there are uh, you know uh, obelisks and lakes and all these kind of uh, summer houses and all these things yeah. that you as a writer can have great fun with is is that the the attraction of the big house? Yeah, very much so. Um, gorgeous location. I love writing location, really strong locations that, you know, if you're reading in a, in a loft apartment in New York or a tent, in an igloo in Alaska, that you get a really strong sense of place. Um, and Ireland obviously is fantastic for that, but Wicklow in this case particularly because of the mountains. Um, so, yeah, it's very much so that the, the location is very important. And the country house, I love that sense of a locked room. I wanted to try and get a little bit of a locked room mystery going on. Um, so we're very much an enclosed space. We've got a very, we've got a cast of characters. It's quite a big cast because obviously we've got the village and we've got the, the people involved in the play. But it's still, there is a limited number of people that can, you know, can have done it. Um, and all the clues there are hidden in the text. So it, hopefully. And now pe- people will know, people who are fans of your work will know that you love a, a, a good Garda or a good detective with Cat Connolly, yep. your, your trilogy there. But in this, really, the police seem a bit disinterested in everything. Yeah. Yeah. So it's really left to the devices of the the people very much involved, Tess and her friend Clarissa and Jen, to try and piece together what might be happening. Exactly. I was really interested in the idea of um, things happening to people um, and things looking like nasty accidents as opposed to murders. Um, And this is what happens in this particular book, that, that we're not necessarily sure until things begin to more things begin to happen that actually there's a murderer on the loose um, and so yes it's very much it's very much driven by a particularly by a character called Clarissa Westmacott who is a retired actress and um, very much a larger than life character um, she's very significant um, and her cat Merlin who is in fact my son's cat um, is also very significant in the plot here. yes yes a very a very perceptive cat and Indeed. Dr Faustus then is the show that's being put on in the house so is is there is there is there a clue in that? Is, a is little there bit, a yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah. It's back to that moral dilemma thing, I think. And um, yeah, somebody might might have sold their soul. Um, so yeah, there's there's some yeah, definitely some clues. I don't want to be giving you too much away. 
Oh, right, yes, yeah, yeah. No, you're giving it a drip, drip feed, I'd say. Um, and then this idea of of theatre and Cl- Clarissa, as you say, one of the key characters mm. is, um, is, is a former star of the stage. Is that an area of interest? Why did you add the theatrical element I just, I into thought, it? I thought the whole... Um, the whole p- sort of politics um, and the dynamics of amateur dramatics was fascinating, and um, and that whole idea yeah, of the people I know who act and who are involved in the stage. That's you get that sense of um, particularly with the play of it being very contained, and it's like it's nearly like the locked room in, its, in itself, and you've got that sense of being you know, quite isolated and you're working very intensely on this particular project. Um, and so again, it's that it's that sense of being very contained and the things going wrong. And, and they become more catastrophic, I think, because they're people who are very close to you and you're very intensely involved with them. So, um, yeah, there's lots of... Uh, and another element then is this kind of supernatural element or the occult. I mean, one of the characters is very interested in potions and lotions and that kind of tarot reading. Yeah. But also there's this idea that because if there are, you know, bodies which had been buried previously from past ill deeds on the state, in the, on the estate, that in fact the place might be cursed. Was that something that you wanted to explore, that notion that a place can carry the memory and therefore the reverberations of past acts? That's exactly it, yes. I, I really but I really feel that there are a lot of places they contain the emotion and um, I think that was, that was really what I wanted to look at. Um, and the person who's involved in um, the nefarious deeds uh, finds out a lot about the history of Kilfenora and what we discover as things go on is that there, yeah, the things are reflected in the past. So things have been happening in the past which are then reflected in the present, I should say. Um, but yeah, I'm really interested in that whole that whole sense of, of place and how spirits can, can linger, I suppose. So I'd better ask you about... Uh Cat Connolly, your um, your, your your guardian, yeah. your guarded detective, um, is she coming back or has she is she on extended sabbatical? Everybody asks me that. It's, it's it's hilarious. She actually. Well, you're not going to do an Agatha Christie on Poirot or anything. Are no, you going well, to yeah, do a job on her? You never know what might happen. I know where she's gone. So I've written. Um, there's a book actually, which is um, a digital only ebook. Um, I have a readers club, and if people go to my website, um, samblakebooks.com, and join the readers club, they can download that book for free. Um, uh, it's called High Pressure um, and it might just feature Cat at the very, very end. Well, that's very... That, I'm so glad I asked. Indeed. <laughs> I've been talking to Vanessa Fox O'Loughlin or Sam Blake and Sam Blake's new novel is The Mystery of Four and it's out now and it's published by Corvus. Sam, thank you very much. It's just gone past quarter to eight. With its legends of gods and goddesses, heroes and monsters, warriors and fools, Greek mythology has long been a source of inspiration for artists. One such legend is the story of Orpheus, a musician and poet, and of his lover Eurydice. Bitten by a snake, she dies on her wedding day and distraught with grief, Orpheus descends into the underworld determined to bring her back to life. From the French painter Poussin to Igor Stravinsky and more recently Baz Luhrmann with Moulin Rouge, many artists have reinterpreted this tragic story. In his new recital, Eurydice and Orpheus, Words and Music, as part of this year's Classic Now Festival, director Conor Hanratty promises to explore the many facets of the 
the myth of Orpheus and its influence. And I'm delighted that Connor is joining me now. Connor, the shades of Orpheus hang over the Classics Now Festival this year. So how did your recital come about? Well, I had done a small piece for the festival last year. Uh, Not small, it was an enormous, beautiful Greek tragedy that we reanimated at the Peacock Theatre. Yes, I think we spoke to you then. Indeed. And so I was chatting with Helen, the festival director, about what might be appropriate this year and the fact that we are now back in person and the idea of having Orpheus as a sort of animating character of the festival. Uh, we, We came up with the idea of trying to put together some of the very many instances of words and music and music and poetry and song and opera all of which seem to have Orpheus at the heart of it. The first opera that has survived in Europe is about Eurydice and at every point that there's a major change in art it seems to be that Orpheus is the the lead character. So, But surprisingly the Greeks didn't write plays. Well, we don't have any that have survived. I had a little look and it seems that Aeschylus did write a play about Orpheus, um, but we don't know what it it might have encountered. We sort of have, like there's one etching somewhere that somebody mentioned the play and that's as much as we have. So it's a little echo and a ghost itself. But perhaps they did, but certainly we have no survivors, alas. And now you give Eurydice top billing in this. It's usually well, Orpheus and Eurydice. It's always Orpheus and Eurydice. And I figured since so many of the, the poems that we're going to use and the texts we have are by brilliant women and they're articulating her experience, she generally tends in the operas to be the one that sadly dies and then she waits around and then he tries to bring her back and then he messes up. Whereas uh, we have a poem by Enda Wiley, we have a poem by Theo Dorgan and a couple of others as well, all articulating her experience and trying to see how she might have felt. And I just figure it's kind of interesting to to let the woman speak too. So I gave a tiny outline of that story, of that myth. Mm. Uh, give us a little more detail. Well, the, the, the amazing thing about Orpheus is his, that his reputation... Uh, And, you know, this is people always will fall in love with a musician and anybody who can make music or, you know, anybody who gives you new music is the kind of person you're going to fall for. Um, But this guy could literally charm the birds from the trees and make rivers stop and rocks split open. He was that talented. So when his beautiful wife Eurydice dies, he has the nerve to go down to the underworld himself and demand and beg that they let him bring her home. And they're not really falling for this until he sings and he sings a song and then even the king and queen of the underworld are saying okay take her home but of course you can't really let people just undie so the the deal is that he can take her back to earth back to life provided he doesn't look back and there's many many interpretations as to why perhaps he does so but just when they're close to earth he does turn around for a glimpse to make sure she's still there and that of course breaks the deal and she's dead again forever. Right, so sometimes it's that he sees the sun and he wants to show her the sun. Sometimes he's just, she's maybe a little bit behind him and she maybe... Is she he, still there? Yeah, is mm-hmm. he doubting it? And that, Indeed. that's and the big th- fault. This is where very much... Uh, different interpreters of the myth can have very different opinions. So we're going to play a, play, a piece by Gluck now. Talk mm. to us about that. So Gluck is uh, a composer who worked in Paris and as I mentioned uh, sort of Orpheus happening when art is changing. Gluck really wanted to change opera and, and reinvigorate it and he wrote this as the piece that he hoped would do so. Um, what we're going to hear is the most famous aria from this which is Orpheus after this failure has happened and he's singing What Will I Do Without Eurydice. So this is Shefaro Senza Eurydice. 
that was mezzo-soprano Janet Baker there uh, performing Gluck. Um, Connor, you know an awful lot about Greek uh, literature and you learned it on the spot. Well, I learned it in school. I, I was uh, I went to Belvedere and I had a lovely Greek teacher called John Walsh and he's instilled in generations of us uh, a grow for the Greeks, I suppose. Um I've certainly this this is a bit of a dream project to be able to to bring together bits and pieces of things. Not all of them classical, not all of them ancient by any means, but certainly yeah, I, I have form in the area. And you went to Greece and you went to Greece many times, but you also went at a time and you observed all the various productions being put on of the great Greek um, plays. Yeah, I had the privilege. I was part of a, a summer programme uh, in the ancient theatre in Epidaurus. Uh, so I went the first year as a student and they asked us at the very end to fill out a questionnaire. And it seems I had a better experience than some others who were with me. But the Greeks uh, <laughs> enjoyed my questionnaire so much that they asked me to join the team and they couldn't get rid of me then. I was with them for the best part of a decade thereafter. Now, as you said, that they are, obviously Gluck is, is you know, opera and it's classical, but many contemporary artists are also inspired. And uh, many people might know that Moulin Rouge is inspired by by Orpheus Absolutely. and Eurydice. It's kind of an extraordinary moment. Uh, this time last year, I think, or earlier in 2022, uh, in New York, as well as a new opera called Eurydice that was on at the Met, uh, there are two, and they're still running, there are two Broadway musicals on right now, both of which are based on the Orpheus myth. Um, as soon as you hear it, that, you know, the, the great poet... Christian in Moulin Rouge who is able to sing these incredibly beautiful things and the conceit in the movie is that every word that comes out of his mouth is a very famous 20th century pop song and he's at the beginning of the 20th century so even before they've all happened this anachronistic thing is that's to show how good he is at songwriting and he goes into this underworld of Parisian nightlife where this wife-to-be of his Satine is uh, in the thrall of a kind of a leader there and he's trying to free her and so on, and you start to see that, yes, very much this is the Orpheus story. That's Come What May from Moulin Rouge and Ewan McGregor singing the role of Orpheus there, which was Christian, of course, in the movie. And this, both the Gluck and the Moulin Rouge will be performed in in your show. Indeed, we have quite an extensive breadth of music. Uh, We're going to have a little piece from the Eurydice Opera, which is the first ever opera from 1600 or so, uh, right the way as far as Moulin Rouge. And even more recently, the the other musical I mentioned is Hadestown, which is a slightly more recognisable Orpheus, Eurydice and Hades story. And we have a little bit from that that we're going to give an audience to. Okay, so, and you're saying Rory Musgrave will be... Yeah, wonderful. Rory Musgrave, the baritone, is going to be singing all these. Um, As soon as he gets the list from me this evening, he's going to hear all the lovely things he will be singing. I hope he's listening. It might just prompt him to know what he's going to be Absolutely, he'll be delighted. (laughs) So you're also using a Nick Cave song, the the title track from his 2004 album, The Liar of Orpheus, because he played the liar. 
Indeed. Well, Orpheus' instrument absolutely was the lyre. And um, Helen brought this wonderful track to the table. And I think it's it's quite a joy as well. If we're celebrating Orpheus as the composer and this great wordsmith and songsmith, it doesn't all have to be opera or musicals. Uh, And this might scandalise some people who are more regular visitors to the concert hall. But I think it's very exciting to have such a breadth of of offerings to give. So we're going to play a piece. How does uh, Nick Cave imagine Orpheus? This is his version of of what happens to Orpheus and to Eurydice and and it's very distinctively his. Uh, We might let listeners hear it for themselves. Orpheus sat gloomy in his garden shed wondering what to do with a lump of wood and a piece of wire and a little pot of glue. Oh, mama. He sawed the wood with half a heart and he glued it top to bottom. So you'll just have to go to the concert hall to hear what happens to Nick Caves. Absolutely. <laughs> so tell us briefly about who are your, uh, who are the performing the words. Sure, as uh, mentioned, poems. It's, uh, Rory Musgrave is our baritone and he'll be joined on the piano by Andrew Sinnott. And all of the spoken texts will be performed by the gorgeous actress Tara Lynn O'Neill. Well... Conor Henrati, thank you very much. He's the director of Eurydice and Orpheus Words and Music. The performance takes place in the Kevin Barry Room of the National Concert Hall at 7pm on Friday. That's January the 27th. For booking and more information for Classics Now, go to nch.ie or to classicsnow.ie. That's it for tonight's show. The programme was researched by Liam Murphy and Amandine Paso-Devine. Harry Buckless was on sound. Michelle Gibson was the broadcast coordinator and tonight's show was produced by Olin, Olin McGowan and Fiatna O'Brainon is next.